You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. All right, all you friendly people, you can all sit down now. (laughs) Well, let's go to God's Word and prayer as we continue looking at uh, Psalms of the Messiah. So God, we thank you today for your word that gives us everything we need for life and godliness, that points us to the promises we have in you. And thank you, Jesus, that you will never leave us or forsake us. You are with us always, even to the end of the age. And I pray you would impress that upon our hearts, Lord. Uh, Even when we feel abandoned, we are not. Lord, help us to embrace the path that you have walked, uh, knowing that you will sustain what you call us to do. And we ask it in your name. Teach us from your word. Amen. Uh, The Apostle Peter writes this, 1 Peter 4. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The Apostle Peter says to Christians, family, suffering is coming. Don't say I didn't warn you. And as a pastor, I think one of my most important jobs is to prepare you to suffer well. Sometimes we suffer because we live in a fallen, broken world. Sometimes we suffer because we're stupid. We sin or we do stupid things and we reap what we sow. Sometimes we suffer because we have a powerful spiritual adversary, the devil who hates us and has a terrible plan for our life and wants to destroy us. But there's a fourth reason we suffer and it's unique to followers of Jesus. You can suffer as a Christian. That's what Peter is talking about. That's what I wanna talk about this morning. What does it mean to suffer as a Christian? It means this, that there are times you will choose to follow Jesus, that you'll respond in faith, that you will obey and things don't seem to work out well. And the pain comes, the opposition comes, the hardship comes, the isolation comes, not because you disobeyed, but because you obeyed. And Peter says, don't be surprised. Why would this kind of suffering surprise us? Well, you know, it's one thing to know intellectually that following Jesus will be hard. It's another thing to actually experiencing hardship for following Jesus, Recently heard an interview with Andrew Brunson. You might remember him. Brunson was a missionary to Turkey. He was unjustly detained there for two years. And and you might remember this. Brunson's imprisonment was widely publicized. In fact, it spawned this worldwide movement of prayer. He had probably hundreds of thousands of Christians praying for his release. It it caught the attention of the U.S. government. and, And we put enormous pressure on Turkey. We, we sanctioned their economy, Europeans divested assets. I mean, the Turkish stock market lost billions of dollars. So huge international pressure and support to get this guy out of prison. And, and you'd think, you know, with all that support that when Brunson walks into prison, this guy would be a modern day Apostle Paul, right? Just writing us letters. Uh, that's not what happened. In this interview, Brunson said that when he got to prison, he expected to have this profound new supernatural experience of Jesus' nearness. And that often happens to believers when they're in prison. 
But, but that's not what God gave him. In fact, Brunson says he lost any sense of God's presence or God's voice. And he says for the first year of prison, he felt like all of his prayers were hitting the ceiling and he developed what he called an offended heart. Angry at God, he, he ultimately began to question God's existence. And, and Brunson said, that was my Psalm 22 moment. It's the Psalm we're looking at this morning. This is the sobering truth, is that there's times you will believe and obey and then suffer and it seems like God is not there. C.S. Lewis describes it poignantly in one of his books. He says, it's like a door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the sounds will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? Uh, if you won't, if you haven't experienced that yet, uh, you will. Peter says, don't be surprised. And, and so the question this morning is what gets you to the other side? Well, we need the mind of Christ. The question is what sustained Jesus through the worst part of his obedience? I think it's Psalm 22. And that's what we're gonna look at today. So we're doing this Christmas series on the Psalms. The Psalms are songs. And we're looking specifically as we lead up to Christmas at songs of the coming King. There are songs in the Old Testament about the Messiah, God's promised King who would come to reign. We're looking at four of these and we're seeing how they were fulfilled in Jesus, how they are fulfilled in Jesus. So last week we looked at Psalm 2 and we learned that the Messiah would be a conquering king, a king who would crush those who stand against him and that all nations would bow before him, but that now at this period in history, this king offers amnesty to rebels like us to come and find refuge. This week we look at Psalm 22, where we see something astounding. Before the Messiah is conquered, he's crushed. He's killed, he's mocked by man and seemingly abandoned by God. And it's clear that Psalm 22 is on Jesus' mind when he's on the cross. What do we learn from this? Well, two things. One, why we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. And then second, how we can be sustained through suffering. What gets you through that feeling of divine abandonment? That's what we're gonna talk about. First, let's look at the inevitability of suffering. Why is suffering inevitable? Let's look at the Psalm and then how it's fulfilled in Jesus. And then let's talk about that a little bit. First 21 verses here. Here's what David writes. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a Psalm of David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. 
You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. David describes this extremely dark moment in his life when it felt like God was gone. Now, we don't know when David experienced this, but clearly this is an excruciating experience. There's physical pain. Bones are out of joint. He's a a bag of bones, we would say. Poured out like water, washed away, dried up like a broken piece of pottery. He's at death's door. He's returning to the dust from which he was made. So there's intense physical pain, but that's not the worst part. What's, What's even worse is that there's relational pain. That as he's going through this, he's scorned and despised and mocked, mocked for thinking that God loves him or would deliver him. Those surround him, he says, make him feel like a worm, like this corrupted thing and not a man. So David feels like a weak little worm, but his adversaries are strong. Bulls of Bashan, a region known for its impressive cattle. They're lions. They are dogs. And when you hear dog, don't think of your labradoodle. Uh, Think of hyenas, wild pack animals. So so you can think of David as this corrupted thing encircled by prey, ready to devour him. Physical pain. Worse, there's social pain. But the worst of all is the spiritual pain. The sense of God's absence that even as David is going through this, God is not with him in it. Notice the heart of David's prayer. He wants to be delivered, but delivered from what? It's not primarily about the physical pain or the social pain. It's the sense that, God, you're not there. God, I can get through anything if you're with me, but if you're not with me, I can't bear this. That's why he prays, be not far from me. Don't abandon me, God. That's the burden. We don't know what prompted this in David's life. Clearly, it's a paradigm, though, of what it means to be the righteous sufferer to obey and have everything fall apart. That's the paradigm. And as New Testament believers, it is impossible to read this and not think of who? Jesus. Because Psalm 22 is just the crucifixion writ large. Nine times in the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, we see Psalm 22 alluded to. Did you catch him in there? Why have you forsaken me? Who says that? Jesus on the cross. Always a good answer, Jesus. David says they wag their heads. That's what the onlookers did to Jesus as he's on the cross. What what do they say to Jesus while he's on the cross? The words of verse eight, almost verbatim, let God deliver him. David says they divide my garments. Who did that? The soldiers dividing and casting lots. There are all sorts of, of, of parallels here. There are even more subtle allusions. David's bones feel out of joint, much like one would feel when they're what? Crucified. David's mouth is dried up. What does Jesus say from the cross? I thirst. David says, they pierced my hands and feet. The the Hebrew there is notoriously difficult to translate. 
But that translation is not a Christian invention. In fact, you see that translation in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint and all these sources that predate Jesus talk about hands being pierced. And so there are all of these arresting graphic specific allusions to the cross here. And that raises an interesting question. I mean, this seems so clear that a Messiah will come and die. And Jesus believed that. In fact, Luke 24, he says, the entire Old Testament points to a dying and rising Messiah. That's the point of the story, right? So, so why did the disciples miss it? Why couldn't they see that? Because it's not just like the Old Testament says it, Jesus says it to them, right? Guys, remember, we're going to Jerusalem and it's not gonna go well for me. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna rise again. Three times he says that. And he says it because it's what the scriptures say. So they knew it was coming. And yet when Jesus is betrayed and arrested, why does no one say, hey guys, everyone calm down. Just take a breath. It's gonna be fine. Jesus has it all figured out, guys. He's gonna rise again. Take a deep breath. Why couldn't anyone see it coming? Now, obviously this was all part of God's providential plan that people wouldn't see it coming. But, but here's what's interesting about the Old Testament. The Old Testament talks about the, the Messiah in two ways. Explicitly, you know what the Old Testament says about the Messiah? He's gonna reign. He's gonna conquer everyone. That's the clear, explicit message. Do you know what the implicit message is? He's gonna suffer. He's gonna die. And that message, it is hinted at but, but you have to take a step back to see it. It's not as obvious. Think about this Psalm 22. It doesn't appear that David is talking about a Messiah, does it? It appears he's just talking about himself and his experience. And so why was Jesus so convinced that the Old Testament points to a suffering Messiah? Here's why. Because Jesus could see something that the disciples couldn't grasp, that the Old Testament points to him, not only through propositions, but you know the bigger way it points to Jesus? Patterns, patterns that go throughout the book. There are two ways the Old Testament talks about the Messiah. One is clear, explicit statements. Here's what's coming. That's kind of the trees. But if you look back and see the forest, do you know what you see? That whenever God works through a promised seed or offspring, that person almost inevitably suffers. Not because they're disobedient, but because why? They're obedient. It's the story from Genesis 3 that the, the seed of the serpent, Satan, will wage war on God's promised seed and you see it right away. Cain and Abel, who's the obedient one? Abel. <laughs> Who gets killed? Abel, right? Abraham, God's chosen, is the man on the run, the landless man, the man who's exiled. Jacob is a man on the run. Joseph, clearly God's seed, gets wrongfully imprisoned at death's door before God uses him and vindicates him. You go forward to David, who's clearly God's anointed and appointed king. Does he get to reign right away? No, guess what? He's rejected and despised by the religious elite and he's a man on the run associated with outcasts. And then you go forward to the prophets and it seems like almost every prophet, every time God's gonna use someone, everybody hates them. Or they kill them or they reject them. And if you look back at this bigger pattern, here's what you see that God works through the righteous sufferer and before being vindicated, they die. 
they die. That's the warp and the woof of the Old Testament story. And the prophets are clear that the Messiah who's coming will be like David. Well, guess what? David was despised and rejected before he reigned. So guess who else is gonna be? Jesus. And when you take a step back and see that, you see why Jesus can see with 20-20 clarity what the disciples couldn't grasp. That his mission was going to be suffering and even a sense of being abandoned by God. Disciples couldn't see it. They could only see it with hindsight. Now we can say, oh, stupid disciples, why didn't you get that? Okay, here's the sobering question for us. Will we be surprised when we obey and suffer and it feels like God isn't there? Peter says, don't say I didn't warn you because remember, it's a pattern. Genesis to Revelation, it's a pattern. We follow Christ, Christ suffered and then was glorified, guess what? We suffer before we're glorified, we share in Christ's sufferings. That means that a servant is not above his master, as Jesus says. If he experienced hostility, you will too. Now, it doesn't mean you go to prison. You might. Doesn't mean you lose your job for being a Christian, although some of you have. I've talked to you. But, but it means that you're gonna make a conscious decision to follow Jesus and do the righteous thing and it won't feel rewarding in the short term. You won't get pats on the back. In fact, it'll make your life harder in the short term. Maybe it means loving your spouse in a way and they just don't reciprocate it. Maybe it means that you are the one initiating relationships all the time and taking an interest in people and asking them questions and trying to draw them out to share the gospel and they just don't care about you. Constantly initiating, serving other people, not getting thanked, not getting reciprocated. Maybe it means you pour years into helping someone recover from addiction or get through something and then you see them relapse anyway and walk away. There is pain and heartache in walking with Jesus where you consciously choose to do the right thing and all you get is pain as a result. Earlier generations of Christians understood this. John Calvin, quoting, commenting on this verse, said, there is not one of the godly who does not daily experience in himself the same thing as Psalm 22, daily. According to the judgment of the flesh, he thinks he is cast off and forsaken by God. While yet he apprehends by faith the grace of God, which is hidden from the eye of sense and reason. What's Calvin saying? That there are times you obey and your sense and your reason say, God is not in this. So that's where we're coming. That's where we're going as, as Christians. So why might we still be surprised by suffering? Here are three reasons, I think, why suffering might still just take our breath away. First one is we associate obedience with immediate success. We just see all the blessings scriptures offer through obedience. We just think that, man, obedience is just gonna make my life smooth. And you gotta think the disciples had this too, man. Messiah's coming, we're on his team, Woo! Conquering, right? Yeah. Well, not first. That might be one reason is we just assume this is gonna be instant success. Here's another one I think. We associate God's will with comfort or ease. It's easy to assume that whatever God's will for me is the thing that makes my life what? The smoothest. Sometimes you hear people talk that way like, oh man, I knew God was in this. I was praying for a job. 
And I knew it was God's will because I'm going to make $300,000. And I can work remotely. And no one's going to check in on me. And I can kind of do whatever I want. Oh, thank you, Jesus. This is clearly God's will, right? Maybe. Maybe it's God's will. But ease or some feeling of peace, that's not a sign of God's will necessarily. Paul said, uh, you know, pray for me. There's a wide open door for ministry, but there's much conflict there. <laughs> hmm. Maybe God's will is conflict and suffering. I think there's a temptation to go to the, say, whatever God's will is, that's the thing that will make my life run, what? The smoothest. Here's another one. I think that maybe I just assume that every problem in life can be solved through human technique or strategy. If we just think this out a little bit better, we get our ministry model right, you know what? We can just be effective no matter what. We just need a better technique. I remember, you remember COVID? Remember that? I guess it's still going on. But I remember at the beginning of COVID, I, I, got, uh, I got all these emails at the beginning of COVID from different ministries and organizations and stuff. And at first they were like, hey, we're praying for you. Man, this is hard. And like five minutes later, they were sending emails like, here's the five-step strategy to unlock breakthrough for your ministry during COVID and to reach everyone online. And it's like, hey, we have a plan. This is hard, but this is gonna be amazing. And here's what you're gonna do. And I'm like, have any of you lived through a pandemic? Like, were you there for COVID-18? Like, what happened? Like, how do you guys know what to do already and have the strategy? Like, maybe this is just gonna stink. Like, how do you know? But there is, I think, a particularly American thing that we can just have a strategy or a technique for everything and be effective. And God says effectiveness will come through suffering. And there's no way around it. No way. Why? Because was there a way around it for Jesus? Nope. Those are a few reasons it might still surprise us. The reality is this. We're going to walk through it. We're going to obey. It's going to be hard. What's going to sustain you in the midst of that? This leads to the second point. Well, what sustained Jesus? Isn't it interesting? When Jesus is on the cross, he quotes from Psalm 22. Now, clearly he's fulfilling this psalm. But I think this psalm was on the mind of Christ as he is on the cross because this gives us a template not just to expect suffering, but what do we do when we start to suffer in this way? You need, if you're not gonna be surprised, you need to know, okay, this is happening. I'm obeying God. It's really hard. It doesn't feel like he's here. What do I need to know right now? Three things from Psalm 22 as quick as I can, then we're done. First thing you should not do, let's start with the do not do. When you start walking through suffering, do not repress your sense of abandonment. Do not deny the way this feels. That's the first thing, because how did the Psalm start? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Now, David will end the Psalm saying, God did not hide his face from me. God brought me through it. God never completely abandoned me, but guess how it feels? It feels like God is nowhere to be found. And here's the mercy of God. He already knows you're gonna go through it. He already knows you're gonna feel that. And he actually invites you to pour out your complaint to him. See, Christians do not face suffering with this sort of stoic detachment. This is great. God's gonna use it. It's fine, I don't care. I'm gonna go through it. That's insane. It is. That's an insane way to respond to suffering because suffering is horrible. 
And God wants to rid the earth of suffering. And so to keep your own sanity in the midst of suffering, you have to cry out to God that this is not enjoyable. And I am having a hard time with it. And I'm having a hard time believing you are good in the middle of it. So help me. And God knew you were gonna feel that way and says, talk to me about it. Do not repress that sense. God invites you. Think about Jesus in Gethsemane. He wasn't this stoic detached. Well, this is gonna happen, whatever, right? That's not someone who is sweating blood and crying and saying, if there's another way, please give it, yet not my will, but yours, right? So don't repress that sense of abandonment. So be honest about it. Here's the thing. That can't be the only thing you talk to God about in that moment. It can't be because the feeling is not what defines reality. It's not what's, what I feel is what's most real, okay? That you have to start recalling what God has already done. Do you see what David does? Do you see that throughout the, the Psalm? He's actually having an argument with himself, isn't he? Do you see that? He's saying, God, I feel this. I feel abandoned, yet you... I know what you've done. You've delivered people in the past. Our ancestor cried to you and you delivered them. But I feel this way. I feel like I want, but you, Lord, I know you know me. You've known me since birth. Did you see the, the, the discord he's wrestling through there? He's not gonna let his feelings of abandonment define who God is. He's saying, God, I know you are a deliverer. I know you answer prayer. I know you do these things. And I'm gonna hold that in tension with how I feel right now. You see that? that? That is key. Otherwise, you will define your world around your sense of abandonment and you will begin to believe lies about God. And that's what the enemy wants you to do. David doesn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. He knew of God's past goodness, which gave him hope that God could resolve the thing in the future. I can't resolve this, God. I can't put this together. I don't know where you are in this suffering, but I know who you are. And so I'm not going to let this thing be my definition of God. Does that make sense? Yeah. Finally, you have to remember the joy set before you. Remember the joy set before you. Jesus went to the cross knowing the joy that was set before him. Do you know what that joy was? Well, it's hinted at here in Psalm 22. David goes through suffering, but you know what happened to David? He got an answer. In fact, he got an answer by the end of the psalm. And Christ knew that obedience would lead to blessing even if he couldn't see it in the moment of obedience. All of a sudden, verse 21, David just erupts. You have rescued me. <laughs> what happened? I don't know. God rescued him though. All of a sudden, you've rescued me from this situation. And now David is praising God for what has happened. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You know, this is, this is fulfilled in Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says. Jesus went to the cross confident that God would rescue and vindicate him. And after God vindicates Jesus and raises him from the dead, the writer of Hebrews says, here is what Jesus says. I will tell of the name of your brothers. Here's what, here's what this is fulfilled in. Jesus went to the cross to identify with us. We're now his brothers and sisters. And now Jesus is declaring to us, look at what God's done. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, that here is now the vindication of Jesus, which was for us. 
I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all, uh, bow all who go down to the dust, even those who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Man, something changed, huh? <laughs> something changed here. We went from God is nowhere and then somehow, somehow in verse 21, the sufferer gets a prayer answered and who does it benefit? Everyone. And somehow this deliverance of the sufferer, now rich and poor coming to worship God, the powerful and those who are about to be in the dust of death are coming to worship God. All the nations are coming to worship God. Future generations are coming to worship God and they're coming to feast and live forever. And now you see why this is about Jesus. Because how can it be that David's deliverance from suffering is something that all generations and nations will praise because it benefits them? See, Jesus could see through that sense of abandonment to this psalm. And so he could quote it on the front end of his suffering, knowing what was coming on the back end. And that is what sustained him through the pain. That is it. And that is our hope is that when we suffer for Jesus, we have fellowship with Jesus. And if God vindicated Jesus, guess who else he's going to vindicate? You. If he raised Jesus, he's going to raise you. Andrew Brunson said that after year one of having his faith basically torn down in prison, year two was the rebuilding phase. And what he learned was to love God even when he didn't sense God. And he said that he had something that was incalculably valuable through that. He said, I learned that I was a proven son and that I had a faith that would endure through the worst of suffering. And he said that it has completely changed his intimacy with God, his relationship with God, everything. But God had to break him to remake him and that's what God is going to take you through. And if you are in that season of obeying and suffering for it, you have to see that there is something incalculably precious to God in the midst of that. There are things that God will only accomplish in your life through obedient suffering. I don't know why, it's the mystery of God's providence, but I know from scripture that it's true. God will give you a comfort that you couldn't experience other, any other way so that you can comfort others with the comfort with which you've received comfort in. God will mobilize his people for mission in a way that only suffering can. We will present the afflictions of Christ to the world through that kind of suffering and it gives our message a credibility that nothing else can. It makes us effective conduits of God's mercy as death works in us, life works in other people. 
And ultimately in eternity, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that our momentary affliction produces an eternal weight of glory. I can't grasp how glorious that is, but Paul seems to be saying this, that when you suffer for Jesus, it somehow increases your capacity in eternity to experience the love and grace and mercy of God in a way that you wouldn't had you not gone through that. Here's the best news of all. If you feel abandoned in your suffering, guess who you're in good company with? Jesus. Which means paradoxically that when you feel abandoned by God in obedience, you actually have fellowship with Christ in suffering and Jesus is very near to you. The good news of the gospel is this. Jesus went completely alone to the cross. So you never have to be alone in your suffering. There's a bit of a, a conundrum in this passage. David says, you've forsaken me. But at the end, he says, God has not hid his face from me. So was Jesus forsaken on the cross? Well, yes and no. This is the mystery of the cross. That on the one hand, in his humanity, Jesus came and became the sin bearer. And in his human nature, Jesus experienced the judgment of God, the wrath of God, being cut off and cast off so that we don't have to. He was punished so that we don't have to be. He went to the depth of our God forsakenness in his humanity. And yet Jesus never ceases to be the beloved son of God in whom God is well-pleased. And so even as Christ is bearing sin, he is still the beloved son of God and prays to God and knows that who will hear him? God. Which is why God ultimately answers the prayers of Jesus and vindicates him because he never ceases to be that beloved son. Jesus endured the cross. He felt the full weight of abandonment. He walked out vindication on the other side so that we will never be alone. There's one more parallel here. Did you catch it? Verse 31, how does the Psalm end? He has done it. <laughs> you could also translate that, it has been accomplished. It has been wrought. What does Jesus say? It is finished. Even from the cross, Jesus knew that this wasn't a defeat. It was a victory. He died in complete confidence, not that God would abandon him to death, but would vindicate him. And so what that means is this, when you feel completely alone and God forsaken, Jesus says, tell me about it. I know exactly how you feel. And yet you're not alone. In fact, you are a fellowship with Jesus who went there so you never have to go there. All right, let's pray. So Father, I pray especially for those who are walking through suffering and the kind of suffering that only comes through obedience. Lord, where they're trying to love people and it's not reciprocated, or they're trying to serve you and it doesn't seem fruitful. Are they acting out of convictions and they're met with hostility or reproach? Would you be a very present help to them, Jesus? And would you assure them that if they were sharing in the fellowship of your sufferings, that means they also have a share in your inheritance and your glory. And would you comfort them? And thank you, Jesus, that you were the one who went there so we didn't have to. 
Lord, so we never have to walk alone. We pray it in your name, Jesus.